Welcome to the Experience Focused Leaders Podcast. My name is Alex Shemalenko. I'm CEO and founder of Relate To, and we are on the mission, both with the podcast and with Relate To, to bring the most important ideas to life. And how do we do that? We do that through amazing, immersive, engaging experiences that move your organization forward, move your customers forward, and move us as a society forward. So if you love ideas, if you love bringing these ideas to life, stick around. Also, at the end of the podcast, we'll reveal how you could potentially be a guest speaker on the podcast as well. Let's get started. Welcome to the Experience Focus Leaders podcast. I am delighted to bring to you Lloyd Lobo. Uh, Lloyd is an entrepreneur, podcast host, community builder. Uh, he co-founded Boast AI and Traction Conference. Boast uh, ran into 10 millions in revenue as a uh, to ARR as a bootstrap business. And uh, most recently, Lloyd has authored a Wall Street Journal bestselling book, from grassroots to greatness, 13 rules to build iconic brands with community-led growth. Lloyd, welcome to the pod. Super excited, man. You bring out the energy you give out and your energy is top rate. So I'm super stoked for this one. Fantastic. Well, you know, you um, you and I, we go way back and I think I think it's sort of good to bring in that, that journey. So we connected in Silicon Valley back around early... 2012, 2013, when you're just kind of early stages of your journey uh, and you were schmoozing and networking and building relationships and and connecting and just bringing good vibes. And um, and I think when I re-bumped into you at Saster, which is one of our customers and you were one of the speakers there not too long ago, you kind of, you haven't changed. You bring, you got this sort of positive energy, but a lot of wisdom, a lot of lessons from the, from the last decade. So I'd love to hear a little bit about um, the journey to bootstrapping uh, to 10, 10 million ARR and, you know, what role did the community have a play in this? And, you know, I think that's, everybody's going to be interested in the current environment to figure out how they can get there and you know community on the one hand is very cost efficient on the other hand it takes time and it takes a certain type of leader so maybe you could di dig into that a little bit and what it took to get it off the ground definitely definitely so i mean a long journey but you know i made a i made a linkedin post about this a little while ago maybe six eight weeks ago and i've been on now a linkedin detox because i spent a lot of time on linkedin and try to make my book a bestseller. And then I'm like, okay, you know what? I need a break from social media, from LinkedIn specifically. So I took a break from LinkedIn last six weeks now, but I made a post about this and it said basically the best way to bootstrap a company to 1 million ARR. And in fact, this is how we bootstrap boast to 10 million with no investor money. And this was not a very dissimilar path than UiPath, which had one of the biggest IPOs during COVID, nine, $9 billion market cap now. And even Basecamp, which we all know about, iconic company from 37 Signals, also started this way. And that is start selling a service. Start by selling a service. And this is a very bad word, right? Especially in the VC world. Boo, so, yeah. All the VCs are going, boo, not scalable. 
Exactly. You know, there's going to be exponential. It's not exponential. It's just generational. It's not generational. So exactly. tell us why. Tell us why you're going in this direction. Yeah. So low gross margins, labor intensive, unscalable, two services. Like, you know, there's a lot of naysayers. But the thing is this, man, there's more than one way to build a successful company, right? And a lot of founders, what they don't do is try to internalize what's best for them. You know, the media has perpetuated this addiction to unicorn porn. In reality, yeah. the world is run by horses, camels, donkeys, cockroaches, right? That the day-to-day the -day businesses. The thing is, I don't blame the VCs. A lot of my friends are VCs in Silicon Valley, right? They raise a lot of money from institutionals and wealthy investors. And that they got to show them an outsized return. If they can't show their investors an outsized return, the investors will just put it in the S&P 500, no? Why would they give it to a VC? They want to see an outsized return. And so to experience that outsized return, the VC doesn't do portfolio theory that this company is going to return 100 million and this one 500. They got to look at every company being like almost a zero sum. Like this company is going to be a five, $10 billion company. What is the path to 100 million ARR in the next 10 years? Now, founders mostly misguided from the environment they're in, the startup environment they're in, are only coached to win the deal. Show them the yeah. big market, yeah. Tam. Tell me about the pitch, the pitch. Like, I mean, if you could count the proportion of startup literature about how to optimize your pitch. Exactly. Versus like, how to actually like get real and get deep with your customer and like really understand what drives them and how to deliver value to them and, you know, like I think the 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 valuable stuff is like ten percent, and like what you're calling porn, which I would probably like the the unicorn porn or startup porn, whatever. It's sort of lightweight, breezy. Every VC is gonna write a post like, "Here are my nine tips on how to, you know, impress me, 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 me. I'm so smart." Like I, you know, and that's the bulk of the industry, and it's sort of mind numbing. Like why is this, why is this going on? Because in the rest of the business literature. I don't think it's quite like that, right? Like people, there's still marketing books. There's still sales books. It's not all about fundraising. What, exactly. what What's going, why is the startup thing? So is it, you think it's just the, the power law that's twisting everything, but is there like some self-perpetuating, you know, like everything is greener and my life is only meaningful as if I'm like, I have a disproportionate outcome. What's going on? Yeah, so I like that we're, I like we're going in this direction before I walk through why we bootstrapped and how we bootstrapped by an unconventional way by selling a service. And, and I preface it by saying like UiPath and Basecamp and many successful companies have followed that path. Now, raising VC is not wrong, right? The VC wants to show an outsized return to their investors. And if they don't, they won't raise the follow-on fund. And for that, they need to find companies that will hit that profile of nearly 100 million ARR in a 10-year period, triple, triple, double, double, double growth. And the companies that have the propensity or promise to be a multi-billion dollar company in that time frame. Now, a lot of the literature, because of the power law and what media has perpetuated and what sells, right? Like 
you know, the seven deadly sins. One of the deadly sins is greed. The big numbers sell in the media, the big fundraising, the big yeah. ARR, the big IPOs, the big exits, nothing wrong with that, but that's what sells. And so that's created this power dynamic where you got to raise money to build a big successful company. Now, yes, if you want to build a massive high scale company, you want to hyper grow, right? You want to blitz scale. Yes, you got to go that path. Unfortunately, that is that is the only path. It's like making a Steven Spielberg movie. There's only one way to make a Steven Spielberg movie is to make that movie by raising a lot of money, right? Well, look, and, I think, and if I do mind if I interrupt just a second, I think, you know, I live in the B2B world a little bit more than a B2C world, even though we're democratizing B2B. So like when you say split scaling, right? And a lot of the startup narrative that we hear, I think it got really influenced very heavily by the consumer startups, right? And the VCs, whether it's like B2B, B2C, you know, same same thing, right? Like they're all looking for the unicorn. There's only that many of those. There were historically a lot more in the B2C world that were really unicorns. So it sort of influenced that like, like applying the blitzscaling techniques to the wrong model feels like that's that's sort of part of the narrative is people are not differentiating what works in the enterprise or or mid-market or b2b or smb b2b versus what works in a b2c world do you feel like there's sort of this generic advice kind of muddled muddied the water and people don't know which you know they're just following the generic sequoia best practices but there is no like here's a sequoia for b2b you know, for an evangelical category, which is completely new versus where you disrupting somebody, which is slightly different playbook. What's your take on that? Like, you know? Yeah. So, so the, here's the thing, right? If there is only one way to s generate a VC driven outcome, then all the advice is going to be best practices that get you there, right? So like, this is how some of our portfolio companies that are best in class that are triple triple double 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 have uh, you know that have built multi-billion dollar companies have done it and and one of them is like hyper growing right and so that's the the advice suits the outcome right always and the outcome is set by the person people rather distributing the capital now here's the thing here's nothing wrong with that by the way right vcs yeah, need to yeah. make a return it's it's created a lot of super successful companies. But what I want founders to consider before starting the company is write a few questions down for yourself. A lot of pain. We we glorify a lot of successes, but behind after, you know, instead of every success or um aside every major success that you hear about in the press, there's 99% failure in the venture back space. Failure meaning founder burnout, founder fallout founder replacement, company shutdowns. You know, mm. before Boast, I had only ever worked for venture-backed companies. My first job out of university and the last job before Boast was working alongside founders. Started as a cold caller, then doing sales in an early stage company alongside the founder and then running sales and then eventually doing Boast. And all those companies prior to Boast failed. Then I was in the founding team of a VC incubated company in the AI space in 2015. And that also failed. And so all my learnings, you know, point to it is a zero-sum game, right? If you run really fast with 
the, you know, and, and you want to get to the other side as fast as possible, you might hit a few cars on the way and you might crash, right? And so the thing is, my I didn't have any success working for any venture-backed company that was trying to hyper-grow. I'd only failed. And my co-founder, Alex, who originally mm -hmm. is from Romania, he is conservative in the true business sense. It's like, let's make money. Let's build a healthy business that customers love and want to pay for and stay. And then when we can squeeze three out mm -hmm. of $1, then we can raise money. So let's build exactly. a capital efficient, capital efficient business. So nonetheless, I had only seen failures in the VC back. And so that was a bit of PTSD combined with having a co-founder that's very real. I mean, he's an engineer plus accountant. So everything is, let's make money, right? Let's do it the traditional way. Let's make money. And so- you know, the question I asked uh, advice founders today is you have an idea before you create that pitch deck trying to show a massive TAM and try to chase VCs to give you money on your big vision. Ask yourself three questions. Number one, what is my personal definition of success? And that personal definition of success is not money in your bank account, but what do you see yourself doing when someday you achieve this startup success? Whether it's 10 million, 20 million, 50 million in your bank account, what do you see yourself doing? Number one. Number two, how much money do you need to have in your bank account to fund that lifestyle? Number three, is there a version of the startup that you absolutely do not want to work for? These, this will give you values alignment and great yeah. companies, great cultures, great personal and professional relationships are built on great alignment. So when you write those things down, this is my personal definition of success. My personal definition of success is, you know what, by the time I'm 45, I want to hang out in Bali and like do nothing. I want the option, you know, to do whatever the hell I want and maybe do some consulting if needed. But I want to bum on the beach and do nothing for at least 10 years. Well, how much money do you need in your bank account to fund that lifestyle? And three, is there a version of the company that you don't want to work for? And you may be like, you know what? I don't want to work for a company where you know the tail is wagging the dog. I don't want to work for a company where there's incessant reporting and yeah. chase. I don't, or it may be like, I want to build a multi-billion dollar company yeah. and I want to go, go, go and operate like I'm supercharged on Red Bull every minute of the day. As long as you're building your definition of success, it works. Then you reason up from there. We always reason up from what the society is telling us, build a unicorn, raise yeah. money, all of this stuff. We don't reason up from our values. So figure out your values, your non negotiables. Everyone starts with negotiables. That's why we end up unhappy when things don't work out. Maybe the first startup fails, you're fine. But yeah. after doing this for many years, if you keep starting from negotiables, you will end up unhappy and you'll be like, why did I do this, right? And, and that happened to me. So start with your non-negotiables. What right. are your version of the company you don't want to work for? What is my personal definition of success and how much money do I need in my bank account to fund it? And so you might, if, you, if you're one of those that says, you know what, I want to create impact at my pace, and I want to be able to control and I want to have a good life, you know, a balance of social and and work. So be it. Run it that way. But, you know, now coming back to bootstrapping, right? So when you bootstrap, now, we didn't sign up for those reasons. We didn't know, right? We didn't write down personal definition of success or any of this. I, things I'd realized years later when I came into money and almost died of COVID and the world felt meaningless to me. So I didn't, I never wrote this down. I was just running, 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 running. Nonetheless, we started in a very small, obscure market, right? We're automating 
tax credits. Our goal was to basically enable innovators to become successful by providing them with funding and analytics to drive innovation. Every dollar spent in innovation returns 20 to the universe, vaccines, robots, clean drinking water. Yet 99% of the innovation yeah. is dying on the vine. And so we started the company to build products for innovators to accelerate innovation. So the first thing we latched on was my co-founder had experience with R&D tax credits. Globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in research and development tax credits to fund businesses, but it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating government audits, and it takes a long time to get the money. So we said, we'll automate this process. Now, here's the thing. When anyone you talk to hears that, they're like, what the hell is this? It's a small TAM. You're targeting startups in 2012. Startups are going to go bankrupt. They're never right. going to pay. And this is before, just contextually, this is before the YC boom really has taken off. And there's a sort of whole ecosystem of startups selling to other startups like Twilio and a few others that have worked out. So so <clears throat> let's let's pause for a second. So let's kind of keep let's keep drilling into the 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 logic because you you're sharing like here here's my story. Like I had seen failures in the you know in the sort of going big venture backed mode and therefore I chose this more careful path. I'll challenge that. I've seen successes, right? I was part of uh, Salesforce was there from, you know, intern yet, but still like from pre-IPO through the IPO, like all that excitement repeat, you know, for now for six, seven years at success factors, again, from early stage to IPO to exit. And uh, at the time, one of the largest SaaS exits. And so I've seen the, um, the success stories and obviously it's motivating to go and do it again, right? Like, and I think that's what motivates a lot of folks that have been in successful companies, serial entrepreneurs. But I, I still think there's a profound importance in starting out on a journey that, you know, almost will be successful regardless of the outcome, right? And I think that's sort of maybe tying back to your kind of being dissatisfied with like highly successful outcomes and kind of getting us in the psychological Play. So I mean, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, kind of, you know, finding a customer that you love, that's your people, right? That you want to hang out with them. This is your, you know, we, we'll get into community in a bit. But like you, I, I love our customers. I'm sure you loved your customers. I was one of your quote unquote customers types. And, you know, I felt the vibe. And I'm sure you have, you know, you, you've got tons of parents that felt like that. And you can't fake that. You can't fake liking your customers. You could over time build some appetite for the problems and empathy, but still at the end of the day, the truly like inspirational leaders, they love their customers. They love the problem. They learn to love it or they felt it, or they feel like this makes their life worthwhile to solve that problem. It puts meaning and purpose in their life, regardless of the outcome. And the outcome, you know, could be an enabler to a very big version of that success story, but it'd still suck if people went in and just did stuff that was meaningless just to kind of do, hey, I'm going to check this or check that or kind of hit that checkbox. So back to, you know, your situation, like guide me on the meaning, right? Like what drew you to, you know, to, to stick with some things for 10 years because bootstrapping is in many ways harder. And where, where did you felt that? Right. And you're something in your experience in the past, you know, is it 
knowing the problem yourself, guide us a bit on that journey. Definitely. So, you know, what's funny is I made a Instagram video on this, a very like 20 second clip on Instagram yesterday on this exact same topic. And I think it's got already like 65 or 61,000 views on this in less than a day. So, you know, All right, we'll when- plug it here. We'll plug it here as well. Make sure it, it triples that. <laughs> Yeah, at at Lloyd Lobo on Instagram, double L-O-Y-E-D Lobo. So here's what happened. When Alex called me and said, let's start a company. I'm doing this manually at a big four accounting firm. I was already frustrated working for different founders who are being beat down by their VCs and driving toxicity in the company because they're first-time founders, don't know how to handle it, you know, kind of thing. Like the company is stressed by like excessive growth requirements that are not being yeah. met necessarily. And the founders are like, like oh, overworking, hustle porn, all this stuff. So when Alex called me, I said, hey, I don't care what company we build, man. As long as we build the company we want to work for, I'm in. And we did both, but in parallel, we did a couple other projects that didn't work out. Both were in AI. Nonetheless, day one, we start. You have an idea for a business. Right. And now looking back, everything looks like a framework when you have some success, but when you're in it, it's spaghetti on the wall. So day one, you start, you have an idea as a bootstrapper. What do you do? Step number one is figuring out your ideal customer profile. So we, you know, we didn't really like put much thought into it. We're like, okay, who are the companies that do product development, engineering, oil and gas, construction, manufacturing? Let's pick up the phone and dial for dollars. Let's call them. So we picked up the better list from the phone book and the directories. And we started calling them, man, we were in for a rude awakening. Nobody would talk to us, right? Because it sounds kind of scammy. Like I'm calling you and saying, Alex, listen, there's this money that I can get you from the government. You pay no interest. You pay no, you, there's no equity. It's the best form of capital. Well, you can pay us a small fee when you get the money from the government. They're like, man, this sounds like a scam. I haven't even heard you. I can't even look you guys up right? You seem like new on LinkedIn and whatnot. And if they knew about it, they were working with very large accounting firms like the one that Alex worked for. So dejected, we said, okay, you know what? Let's swarm these people's events, manufacturing, oil and gas, construction. And we just couldn't resonate. We looked like two guys who threw on a suit jacket on top of a hoodie and they felt like the old cigars club. Now, super Mm. dejected, we said, let's go and see what's happening in the startup world, right? Startup was like a very new and upcoming term kind of thing. This is 2012. And we started going to all the startup events. And Alex, I kid you not, man, felt like I found my tribe. Till today, right? It's my tribe because not only we built Boast for it, we built a nonprofit community called Traction, 120,000 subscribers, conference every year, podcast every other week. I also wrote a book, which my community made a bestseller and it's for that audience. And so we instantly found our tribe. They were starting a company. We were starting out. We started hanging out together. And, you know, our startup was our life. Theirs was their life. So we started eating together, hanging out together, even partying together. We started doing hackathons together. It became our tribe. Now, fast forward today, when I give advice to people or they ask me like, hey, where do I start? I have an idea. I'm like, four things. Number one, do you have a passion for the audience or the topic? Do you love this audience? Building a company any kind of company is a long freaking slog. You will not sustain if you hate your audience. And as you scale, as a founder, you spend more and more time with customers. It's not less and less time. 
your time is spent more and more with customers because you're strategizing on the next thing and the next thing. So if you hate your customers, you will never be able to sustainably create. But then there are three other things. One is, is it a small but growing TAM, right? A lot of people yeah. like to start with a massive TAM. And the thing with a massive TAM is it's hard to find white space because you're trying to be everything to everybody. So I say, when you're starting out, just niche down. So yes, the business world that does product development is a massive TAM globally. But when you niche down and niche down and niche down and you're like startups that are, you know, yeah. seed seed in series A is who I'm targeting. That's a very hyper niche TAM. And so they have specific problem sets. And the problem sets we found at the time was in 2012, there was no LinkedIn that was prevalent for content a lot of the advice wasn't very tactical, like outside yeah. of blogs, podcasting for business wasn't a thing. All the conferences at the time were high level CEO conversations. And a person at seed or series A doesn't need a high level CEO inspiration. They need tactics. So that was one white space we found. And outside of TechCrunch and, and VentureBeat, there were not many publications that were covering startups. So we found two white spaces and we went all in on that and leveraged uh, to build a community. We started hosting our own events weekly like small yeah. events that eventually exploded when 200 people came to the co-working space. And we started a column, newspaper column called Startup of the Week and uh, you know, convinced the newspaper uh, editor right. to give us a weekly Startup of the Week column, which became a print column. So that print column started building our audience and whoever would apply, we would invite them to our in-person events. And that's how we built the community. That's a big community. Uh, so, but what, what's interesting, and I just want to kind of highlight for the purpose of our audience, because there's a real nuance here. When you say niche down, but what you actually did was first, you went a little bit broad and you started investigating who is the ICP, right? So you went like before building out the whole thing, you went and explored where there is a where there's a bet, best fit for you as founders, maybe for the product vision that you have. And then you niche down once you figure out you, you you had a few no's. This actually really mimics our what we've learned, right? And like because you you could have, you could go out there, learn about, and then see where's there is fast moving water. Where are the people that are kind of just moving fast, pleasure to work with, you know, follow up, and then you could say, okay, that's where we're gonna niche down. I think too often people, uh, the prevalent advice whether it's investors or even actually in the broad, like launch new business within a larger business, is sometimes people go, go niche, go niche, go very narrow before doing that investigative journey of like, what's your ICP to your point, deal customer profile and where's kind of, there's a sort of potential for better product market fit. And then, so they end up putting all their eggs into the, um, okay, we're very deep into this direction. Inevitably, like in a lot of venture-backed companies, it fails. <laughs> and then they do the pivot, right? And then they kind of just keep doing two or three pivots until they burn the money. And none of like, so I feel like that's the opposite of a little bit of the approach that you're doing where people go build something really fast, narrow. It doesn't work out. They do it again. And then, you know, some, some teams make it, majority don't. And, and so what's, you know, in your view, do you see a lot of people doing that kind of adjustment and kind of learning from the community, like let the community take you where the pain is? Because I'm sure that's how you've expanded your portfolio, right? Yeah, definitely. I think you got to start with the customer, right? So so that's what, figure out one, do you love this ICP? Do you love this ideal customer profile? Niche down, right? Make sure niche down is a small but growing TAM. 
Third is, do they have a propensity to pay? If they can't pay you, you'll never build a business. Yeah. And the last one is ease of access. You might love a market. Yeah. Really, you might love that market. And it may be small and growing, right? But if you can't access, like to yeah. sign on like five, 10 of your first paying customers, then you'll not get off the ground either. So keep those in mind. Like, do I love this audience? Small but growing niche and propensity to pay and ease of access. But once you have that, honestly, it's a matter of understanding the ICP. We spend a lot of time with them. So we didn't do this deliberately. Like I said, right? We were dejected trying to sell yeah. to manufacturing, oil and gas construction. And we started hanging out with the startups. Now, as a function of hanging out with the startups, we figured out their pains and their goals, but pains and goals are short-lived. We also figured out their aspirations, right? Your pains right. and goals will give you for your first product, but en route to 100 million, almost every company has more than one product. If you understand your customer's aspiration, it'll give you your product two and product three. So we figure out their pains and goals, which are immediate and their aspirations and what stood in the way. The other thing as a function of spending time with them, we understood three very key things, their circle of influence, meaning what are the tools and services they pay for? That gave us a list of people we could partner with. Who do they follow? Meaning who are the influencers yeah. they respect? This gave us a list of people that we could invite to our events as speakers, invite to our podcast as speakers. And as a function of inviting these influencers and hanging out with these influencers in front of our audience, we got their social proof. We got their brand rub. Like in the early days when no one knows you and you hang, hang out with people of influence, you get their <laughs> social proof and you follow this path of visibility, credibility, and then profitability. And then the last one was we figured out where do they hang out, right? So what platforms they're prevalent on, what blogs, magazines they read. So that informed our distribution strategy. And now once we understood this, honestly, man, we just tried to sell a service, nothing else. We literally sold them a service. Remember this always, especially now in the age of generative AI, yeah. I firmly believe almost every SaaS tool that needed to be built has been built. And now eventually people are gonna start asking the question, why do I need the next marketing automation tool? I want more leads. Why do I need to buy yeah. more tools to hire more people and hire more IT staff to maintain it? Why don't you just give me the outcome? I have this contrarian view that especially with no code and generative AI, we'll see a lot of companies, some really, really successful companies that are digitizing services to get outcomes. So not as like, okay, buy an SFDC, yeah with um, a person to implement it, but like, just manage this, give me the, give me the outcome. So I truly believe yeah. that customers want outcomes, not software. And so that's the advantage for the service. And by the way, I like to double click on the generative AI. I think we already had before generative AI, we already had an output mentality, at least in like say content creation, people like great I created another ebook. Fantastic. Right. Output. My job is done. Right. Like, you know, designers like, oh, great, another, you know, social post, great, my my or or image, my job is done. That's very different than outcome. <laughs> you know, like that's very different than actually engaged customer working through that, you know, and then drive going further into their buyer journey. So I think unfortunately, this the generative AI almost feels like it's it's putting fuel to the fire of output and create for the sake of creation, kind of some sort of outdated playbook model. And what you're talking about, it feels like much more relevant, right? In the world of noise, I need either the outcome or some sort of engaging experience, and we'll come back to that in the community level, that 
helps you stand out versus just crank out more output. Exactly. And, and, and you're, um, you know, what, what I want to come back to one point that you brought up, which I don't think a lot of people selling to startups have figured out, which is propensity to pay, right? So um, you probably had a challenge, right? And when you're doing events that are broad, right? Like a maybe traction is a good branding for your event because you're looking for people at distraction stage versus at idea stage, right? That are a little bit further along. But you had a pretty high price point, right? 20K or something, somewhere thereabout. And, you know, I'm curious how you manage to be, a you know, a, a service, inclusive service, right? For asp aspiring entrepreneurs, while at the same time delivering on your target of actually meeting the types of companies that can't afford 20K, which majority of the startups may struggle with. You know, here was the good thing we did or the positive thing we had a contingency fee model meaning we uh, only charged when the customer got the money got it so you took on the risk yourself of potentially executing something that may have worked may have not and so you were able to open up the portfolio to broader set of uh of your services but to a broader set of startups exactly exactly okay got it okay so this is your story a little bit of the of the growing in this we heard the few places where the community come in you know i'm a believer right i was salesforce obviously built in a tremendous community uh i've came back to that community and that was related to we we we're part of the ecosystem and as one of their kind of, um, they had the Ex Salesforce Accelerate program, which we went through as a promising partner. You know, we got to meet with all sorts of folks in the community. And I still re remember this lady that had a Salesforce tattoo, which is probably the first B2B company that I have a ran across at the time with tattoos on it. And she was telling a story of um, how when she lost her job as a CRM analyst, the community helped her out, helped her find another job. And it sort of became a real source of uh, uh, support in her life, and that was really impressive. And uh, you know, and you know, I love the kind of the the vibe that Mark has managed to build and maintain. And obviously, we all are exposed to other communities. You know, the Ferraris and the that you know, majority of people buy some sort of token accessory, and that's the bulk of the revenue of Ferraris, not the actual Ferraris. And so that's sort of a community, a brand community, or I think you talked about Harley Davidson, um, and I think also Harley Davidson is one of those few uh, products where people have a tattoo without owning the motor motorcycle, which is pretty impressive, right? Like as a level of brand and community commitments. But in your view, you know, people get confused, right? Like a community audience brand, like we talk about brands. Help us kind of cycle through that, and especially. Maybe in the world of B2B, what does that mean, right? And also, um, we'll come back to this, but like in the world of digital communities, what does that mean, right? Because, you know, Salesforce got started where you could all get together for Dreamforce and, you know, various local events. And that's becoming harder. And you've, you grew up in that world yourself. What do we do now where if we're kind of a PLG uh, startup and we don't have, you know, dollars, 
to run community events potentially what any any ideas there and helping audience navigate through like okay let's i believe in community how do i do it definitely so i think you know you got to understand the differences here right so as i looked at hundreds of companies and talked to thousands of people when writing this book my book from grassroots to greatness 13 rules to build iconic brands with community led growth i found something very interesting Every small little idea that eventually became a global enduring phenomena from Christ and Christianity to CrossFit had the exact same four stages. Number one, people listen to you or buy your product or service. You have an audience. Okay. When you bring that audience together to interact with one another on a cadence, it goes from being a one-way communication to a two-way communication. You have a community. When that community comes together to create impact towards a purpose that's beyond your product or your profit, it becomes a movement. And when that movement has undying faith in its purpose through sustained rituals, over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. So audience, community, movement, religion. A lot of people use the word community, but think about it. If you're creating content online and you have lots of followers, just think if I stop creating this content, what happens to my audience? And if that audience is gone because you stop creating, then you don't have a community, you have an audience. But if the community continues to congregate and connect and get together, then it's beyond you, right? It's now a community that's connecting with each other and congregating around a purpose, right? The founder of CrossFit may die or the, you know, Harley Davidson, right? These brands, people come together because of a certain purpose. Yes, the brand mm -hmm. gave, gave, gave it a home, but nonetheless, the brand ignited that community through purpose. And it all started with an audience. People bought it or bought into the idea, started to listen to it. And then when they started coming together and interacting with one another around the purpose behind the brand, then it became a community, right? And so that is so. Really so this, so 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 let's say we we skip the cult for now. So, but like, let's go. Like, how do we go beyond community into the third step? Like, what have you seen? You know, have you seen examples? Right. So, in, in my case, the Salesforce. There is this purpose. Uh, there is a sort of socially responsible business. Um, it it certainly is beyond the CRM, it, you know, and it's always been there, but it's sort of become much bigger. I think over time, what are you what do you see as the most successful business applications of you know going beyond audience and into community and beyond? Definitely, Atlassian. Think about it, Atlassian okay. last year. Their community came together to organize 5,000 events, self-organized. If Atlassian had to organize 5,000 events, they would need a massive team. So what's happened there is they've got 5,000 super fans who on average went and engaged 100 people. So they've now gone and engaged half a million people. And it's around helping people become better at the Atlassian as a product, but moreover leveraging Atlassian to create better outcomes for their customers and while also making money. 
So that is a great example. And it's not something that happened overnight. It took 20 years of nurturing the community and providing for the community and helping the community. A lot of us, you know, one of the key things I found is community-led company values are very different than a lot of other company values. And some of mm -hmm. the key traits I found of a community-led company is they facilitate connection. They give people autonomy. They want to help people get better and better at their craft, mastery. There's a sense of purpose that's greater than the profit or the product. There's great energy because without energy, all communities eventually fall asleep. And the last one is recognition. They proactively recognize and reward their community members, right? Every community will have 1% super fans who are super engaged. You want to elevate them to a community leader status, give them active roles, give them opportunities to MC or host events, give them the soapbox. Then you got 9% who are like casual contributors and you know you want to support them as well and try to elevate them to the 1% super fans. And then the 90% are lurkers and that's fine. Like that's for any social platform or any community, one, nine, 90 is, is the rule. So if you can activate your 1% super fans, nothing like it, right? And the way to activate them is to recognize them proactively. When you proactively recognize people for things small or big, they keep coming back for more. You infuse them with energy. And a big part of that is the vibe and how you communicate and the things you do and the activities you do at your events. And yeah. you give them the autonomy. And when people have the autonomy, they take charge and they run the damn thing, right? And so uh, another example, and not a business one, but this was Startup Weekend. You remember Startup Weekend? Yeah, yeah, it was the they got bought by um, um, TechStars. TechStars eventually, yeah. And then, and then it fell flat. But like you know, it's not happening. But there was a time in San Francisco where every weekend there were three or four different Startup Weekends happening, and I was an early champion of this. And people would volunteer to host these three-day hackathons where you come on a Friday with an idea, yeah. and by Sunday night, you create an MVP. Man, what a community it was. We would just come together to engage people and do it for the love of the audience, right? We had the autonomy. We would infuse great energy and we would be proactively recognized. Startup Weekend would fly us all um, once a year to a big festival in like in either in Brazil or Vegas and things like that. There was a lot of love. And so I think- Lloyd, right Lloyd like, let me pause you for a second because what- I'm hearing is a lot of physical, eventually it all ends up being physical. And so is the answer that to really build a true community, you have to, you have to do these physical things, right? You may start with users, you may start digital, but eventually it's when people come together, when they make those human to human connections, that's when the magic happens really. Or, or have you found examples of like all digital communities um, uh, at least in business. You know, we're now sound and sight, right? Anytime you incorporate more than two senses, like taste, yes. touch, smell, you start to build more stronger bonds. Think about all your personal connections that are your closest friends. You must have met them in person at one point. So I'm not saying physical is the only way, but I'm saying a, a, a cadence might be that let's say you host a live weekly webinar right? And you're doing a podcast every week. And maybe you have a WhatsApp channel that's blowing up every day because the audience is communicating. And then you do like maybe a bi-weekly newsletter. All this digital stuff that you do, just make sure 
augment it with at least one in-person activity. And it doesn't have to be a massive conference like a Sastra or what we do at yeah. Traction, right? It could be as easy as guys, you, you know, you, you look at the trends in your ecosystem and who the most engaged audience members are, give them some budget and say, hey, I'm, you know, why don't you just host a meetup to get together? But do that on a cadence. Don't stop. Maybe monthly. Because hosting a pizza night like we used to do back in the day, every week, is no skin off anyone's back. It's easy. You host a pizza night. Uh -huh. You bring a speaker. You get 10, 20, 30 people to congregate. And the thing is, you do it with more and more cadence. People keep bringing their friends and they get more and more involved. And they stay longer. They build stronger bonds. And they become evangelists for your brand. 99%. And see, here's the thing, right? There's always anomalies to everything. But 99% of the most iconic community-led businesses, enduring brands, from Apple to Harley-Davidson to Red Bull to Nike, there's a big in-person um, event. Yeah, hmm. there's a, there's a in-person activity that happens on a certain cadence, and you look combine this with your personal relationships, like right. That. Well, th this is one of the things that was really fun. Like, for example, I came to Sastra in large part because they're their customer. And then there I get to meet my customers and my people. And then you and I bumped into each other. And so heads off to Sastra to building a great community of SaaS founders. Um, but one of the things that you brought up that I, I still think is really interesting is the, the idea that the more senses you get involved, the better, right? And so if we go to the the, the early stages of B2B journey, typically, let's say I want to learn about something or read like a, you know, some kind of quote unquote, top of the funnel, you know, research document, it's like black and white, white paper style, right? And maybe if you're lucky, we'll have some images in there. So there is at least like visual thing, but it, it is kind of, it feels um the opposite of interaction, right? It feels like it's some sort of monologue, monolithic you have to flip lingering to page 85 to get to the parts you care about on your phone you know so it just kind of feels like all these barriers that we're putting up to engagement and the opposite of that could be you know maybe not perfect but it could be like let's say the same thing but it's like from an event and it has you know a your your instagram post that you were talking about where you talk your video where you tell your story next to some text and maybe like learning more about your company so people could contextualize it depending on their learning style, right? And it could be ability to just pick your own adventure, right? And go to the sections that you really care the most about today, right? Maybe not every day, but today you maybe have different or on your device, you kind of want lightweight stuff because it's end of the day and you don't want to go deep, but like when it's middle of the morning, you might go kind of be in the reading mode and taking notes mode. And so imagine you have digital experiences that almost bring the magic of the community, right? Bring the people, the personalities. Um, do you think this is a, uh, let's say not a substitute, but you know, if, if we believe that communities are not affordable to some you know, organizations on a regular basis, do you think enlivening the content is part of the solution or like, you know, most of the people from the events that you you like enterprise events, 95% of the desired audience never makes it to the event. It's a tragedy. Yeah. People put up this event, but the big decision maker, they're not going to go listen about your, 
best uses of your product and demos in your product conference, but they're the ones that are signing up. They're the ones that need to believe that you're for real. And so we have customers that are creating these event books now that are kind of bring the experience of the event to all the people who couldn't make it, to the sponsors, et cetera. So help me kind of see what you, you in your research, where have you seen companies be very smart at giving these communities digital superpowers along the lines of what I described? And I'm just talking about what I know, which is us, right? But you have the broader universe of where people are enabling that in a clever way. Um, what, you know, especially they had to do it during COVID and you had to do it during COVID. What did you see, um, some innovative approaches there? You know, during COVID, when we entered COVID, I think we had like 30 some odd thousand subscribers. And after COVID, um, we have now hundred plus thousand subscribers. And so we had planned a massive conference during COVID, which we had to cancel. And I freaking freaked out. I'm like, most of our lead gen was through events and we had to cancel this conference. And I dreaded the idea of doing a two day virtual summit. When the world goes mission, when the world goes buffet, you got to go Michelin star. Everyone was doing two day virtual summits. And I had PTSD. I'm like, all the tech is going to fail managing speakers and digital events have more drop off than in-person events, in-person events. Honestly, when people buy a ticket, they show up the digital events, even if people buy, they're like distracted and they don't show up as much. So I said, you know what? I can't sit through a two-day virtual summit. So I can't expect my audience to sit through it. So I went out to all the speakers and said, would they hop on a live Ask Me Anything, a live webinar once a week that eventually turned into twice a week? Now think about it. When you have one big conference, virtual or in-person, you're promoting one activity, right? Buy my stuff, come to this conference, come to this conference, come to this conference. That's the only thing you're promoting. And if you are now hosting one different event every week, you have a new dopamine hit, right? You're like, hey, today Alex is going to talk about content experience and how to grow your audience through content. And next week, somebody is going to talk about how they build Loom to millions of users. The following week, somebody is going to talk about how they build Atlassian into a $40 billion company, leveraging the power of community. The following week, somebody is going to talk about how they got, you know, how they leverage PLG to drive growth. So you send one email exactly a week or a few days before the webinar and people show up and we're getting hundreds of people show up because it was value it was just in time. And then the next time my email came in their inbox, it was a new dopamine hit. It was a new topic. It was a new speaker of influence. So I think that really works. Um, right. And, and now probably digital has gotten even harder. I like it when you're a lot of the companies that do well in this are people that try to infuse experiential activities into the digital space, right? And so Lenny yes. is doing Lenny mm -hmm. is doing a great job with his newsletter, and um, you know there are some groups like even Atlassian or even Notion, phenomenal, right? Engaging their audience to create content and then pro providing rewards. Like people are making money creating these Notion templates, right? And then doing digital augmented with in person. So I think. There is no substitute for human-to-human -human interaction that happens in person. Digital is great and it's phenomenal and digital should be your strategy year-round. But the way to like 10x your digital output 
is then give people a way to meet at some cadence. And think about it. Whenever people come and meet in person, they're more likely, it's a, it's a loop, man. They meet in person, they get to know each other better. Then they're more engaged digitally too. They're like, oh, you yeah. know what? Now, yeah. now I met I met Alex at this this event. You know what? I'm gonna engage with Alex on chat, right? Yeah. Well, and then there's this, like you said, there's a now you've created a positive connection. So every time that connection works, right? It's a it's a beauty uh, that reminds people that you've created this this values for the community. So I love your tagline that you know um, the only way not to be commoditized is to build a community or I'm, I'm i'm ruining it but you know we have something similar which is the experience is kind of the way to to get through the the com uh, commodity trap um what what if you had one last bit of wisdom you know what would be kind of your advice for people that are thinking about you know building building a you know going from the audience stage on towards you know community and beyond Definitely. I think once you figure out who you're going to serve and you have a passion for this audience and the content, make sure you've niched down. So you're addressing a white space and you're not saying the same thing that everyone is right. Uh, make sure you're providing specific value for that audience that they're not getting anywhere else. And once you start creating content, whether it's on TikTok, if your audience is on TikTok, create on TikTok. If your audience is on LinkedIn, create on LinkedIn, wherever it is, consistency is the secret ingredient that turns small actions into big outcomes. Like give yourself like six to 12 months of creating consistently and monitor what's resonating and modify from there. And once you start building this audience, then start reaching out to this audience to understand like their pain points and what value they seek. How can you make the content and the community more helpful to them? And then do one of two things, bring them together either by hosting a live, you know, once a week, or maybe create a chat group where people can engage. But be very selective because your first 10 people will decide the pace. If you're not maniacal about your ICP and you have all kinds of people there, they'll muddy the conversations and it will be invaluable to anyone. It's almost better to start with 10 people and they get great value. And then the 10 people recommend, oh, there's this other person like me and like me and grow from there. Because your audience that you create, like whether it's on TikTok or LinkedIn or YouTube or wherever, or your newsletter, it's going to be wide because they're going to be your ICP and they're going to be casuals who are interested in the space. Right. And a lot yeah. of the times, a lot of the times, it's more casuals than exactly your ICP. So figure out who your 1% of super fans are and yeah. create, a, create a community for them and provide value to them. And then let them bring more people in and grow from there in the early days because it's like doing things that don't scale, like I talked about, right? Going back to your question one, which I didn't entirely answer. So I want to close out by, by taking that, right? It's like being maniacal about this audience and uh, you know how we bootstrap was number one, customers want an outcome, not software. So figure out who they are, what pains they are, they yeah. have, and then deliver the outcome by any means possible. This makes you really good at selling also, right? And uh, you have no software or widgets to hide, no outcome, no customer. So we got paid to do this work manually and got customers their desired outcome. And then our first iteration was built using a low-code tool called Zoho Creator with Zapier. 
And now today there are many options like Bubble and Webflow. But really, once you do this work manually for your customers and spend so much time with them, you identify what are the manual and repetitive mm -hmm. tasks to automate. And then you can break down into smaller components, right? So you can use drag and drop interfaces and templates to build your first prototype if you use a no code, but you can leverage APIs if your process involves gathering data. Then you can write some code to normalize that data and then some code to apply workflow. It's oversimplified, but that's what it is. If you offer a service, you know exactly what to build because you're delivering it manually. You know what the pain points are. And then in parallel, we started just creating content for this audience, which we've done for like almost 10 years and just bringing them together. We we did an online activity and we did an offline activity at a cadence. So for example, your one Zoom recording can turn into a long form YouTube video, podcast, right. shorts, reels, right? Text for LinkedIn, social posts, newsletter, Substack. And then you can host a virtual meetup and then you can augment that maybe once a quarter with an in-person or every other month with an in-person. So that's what I would uh, suggest as we close out. But, you know, very tied to if you, uh, it's easy in 2023 to build software. What's hard is building an audience and turning that audience into a community. But if you have an audience and can turn it into a community, you can sell, Logan Paul can build a $200 million business selling, you know, <laughs> selling the new energy drink, right? Which there's right. no dearth of, right? Because the audience loves you and they're tied to your purpose as a as an individual or as a brand, and they will buy from you because they get value from you. So figure that out first and uh, start bringing people together. And honestly, I kid you not, if you have an audience or a community and they love you and they get they love the value they're getting from you, look at like Justin Welsh, right? He's built this massive community around solopreneurs. People buy consulting from him, right? He created a bunch of digital products. Now tomorrow he can turn around and sell a full-blown software to automate some of his consulting and people will buy it. And there he has a SaaS business. So that's what I'm saying is like build that audience, understand their pain points, turn that into a community. And even if you sell manually, don't get discouraged because people don't tell you, people tell you it's not scalable. We're in an age driven by generative AI, no code. Everything, almost everything. Is scalable. Like not, <laughs> Except for the community, right? <laughs> Except for the... Yeah. And like what, what I think what you heard, what I heard really powerful about what you're saying that resonated with me and it aligns with some of the other speakers that we had at the, and friends that we had here. Um, and I, so we had the CEO of Alterix, Dean Stoker, which is you know publicly listed company, also bootstrap fundamentally underlying theme is community of super users, right? Like in, the, in our case, we call them super creators, but these are people that really like had their, you change their career, you change their trajectory and they really like loved all the analytical tools that they built. Same thing, Mark Organ, um, you know, founder of Eloqua, uh, you know, fundamentally the same thing. They were like, the, they created the demand gen kind of community of like super users and they were, they were really people deeply passionate about, it. they were different than an average marketing person. They kind of, they were the first place for the community for them. So what I'm hearing for you is the, the, the getting that to that super user, super creator, super consumer, whatever your, your, your product is the foundation of all that work in the community. Because if you're going like spread, you know, the peanut butter approach, you're going to get a bunch of passive folks that are not 
coming back that are not going to be word of mouth promoters of your cause in your community. Did I did I catch that as a kind of foundational step? Yeah, definitely. Start with your customer, provide value to them, focus on a select few. It's better to do things that don't scale much like your product, right? Please the early yeah. ones and then expand the cohorts from there yeah. and expand and expand and expand. That's uh, the way I would do it. Beautiful. Lloyd, how can people find you and benefit from your brilliant books and uh, companies you've built? Definitely. So Boast AI, if you're in the US or Canada and you need product development money from the government, we automate that. If you want to learn anything about community, I wrote this great book, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth from Grassroots to Greatness. It's on lloydlobo.com or from grassroots to greatness.com. Jason Lemkin of Saster wrote the forward on it. And generally, I'm Lloyd Lobo on LinkedIn and Instagram, double L-O-Y-E-D-L-O-B-O. I'm, I'm taking a bit of a LinkedIn sabbatical, but uh, I'm just experimenting with more video content on Instagram in the last few weeks since my social sabbatical is over. My goal was to make the book a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And within, after a week of uh, the book launch, it became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. And to do that, I appeared on 80 podcasts <laughs> in, in uh, eight, nine weeks, and they all released during the week of my launch. And I'm like, I need a breather. I, I, need, I need to take a couple month breather. And so I decided to take a little bit of a sabbatical from socials. And then now recently I started experimenting on Instagram. Yeah. And and want to leave you with this thought that, you know, yesterday's innovation will always become tomorrow's commodity, right? Look at it. We don't say dot-com yeah. company anymore and we don't say uh, social or mobile company anymore. And we won't say AI company anymore, to be quite frank. In fact, the largest AI success, OpenAI, was also built on communities, open source project, and everyone was giving it uh, its data. But if you build a community, you will not become a commodity from Harley Davidson to HubSpot. Some of the most iconic brands out there, generational companies are built on human to human connection. Thank you so much, Alex, for having me. Lloyd, it's been a pleasure. And just as a symbol of my admiration and stealing your ideas, we have a hat that we've specially prepared, you know, that that kind of tries to mimic your unforgettable <laughs> hat. Uh, but I think, you know, flattery is, uh, is a, is imitation is the best form of flattery I hear. So, uh, great job on building out your community, uh, staying, uh, staying top of mind, even as, as you kind of are taking sabbaticals, you're kind of, you're still out there. And, the, you know, I think we love, um, we love all the nuggets that you shared. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Welcome back. Alex Shivalenko here. Thank you so much for listening to Experience Focus Leaders podcast. You can learn more about us at podcast.relateto.com, R-E-L-Y-T-O.com. Obviously, we would love for you to send this to people that you know who would be great speakers or just share the nuggets that you took away from this episode with your community on social. And you could learn more about what we're up to on relateto.com. You could certainly connect with me on LinkedIn where it's just very easy to spell my name. You have to have a master's in Ukrainian. It's Shevelenko, S-H-E-V-L-E-N-K-O. Would love to connect so that we can move together the way the world communicates about its most important ideas. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time. Mm -hmm.